Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. That's right, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, help. Uh, what I love about BetterHelp is that it's a professional uh, therapy right there on your phone. You don't have to drive through traffic. You don't have to sit in the office. You don't have to, you know, have that awkward, you're walking in and somebody you know is walking out kind of situation. And the most important part is you get to talk to an actual person. In this day of automation where you call a company or a service and it's a, it's a computer or some AI voice, no. Within 48 hours, BetterHelp.com will match you up with your own person who is going to be ready to talk to you. And if you travel as much as I do, they can help you from anywhere in the world, whether you're in Iceland, Poland, Sri Lanka, wherever else you are in the world. So go to BetterHelp.com, get your 10% off your first month now. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guests are Kim John Payne and Luis Fernando. And they're here to talk about their book, Emotionally Resilient Tweens and Teens, Empowering Your Kids to Navigate Bullying, Teasing, and Social Exclusion. Let's jump into the episode. What was the impetus for you to writing this book, Emotionally Resilient Tweens and Teens, Empowering Your Kids to Navigate Bullying, Teasing, and Social Exclusion. So I think Kim should start on this one, uh, but you know, we, all, we, we each came to it from, from different worlds, and that is kind of, I think, what the potency of this book has, that it's two different people from two different worlds uh, bringing together their personal experience and their, and their vast professional experience in, in this arena. Yeah. yeah I, oh, go ahead, Kim. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Leo. The, yeah. The, what what really sort of um, prompted it for me was um, was bullying, exclusion, marginalization, and honestly, it's just straight up dehumanization. You know, when when a kid is dehumanized, just being less than human, it's kind of the worst experience you can have in your life as a kid or as a human being, and. As such, you know, I think it's just an issue we've got to gather around and help our kids through uh, and and in, and empower ourselves and empower our kids to be able to go into school, into the neighborhood, into their sports clubs, wherever they're going, feeling like they can stand strong, feeling like um, they can, that their parents and their coaches and the people who are important to them in their life have got them, have got their back. And that they, and so what it was for me was, was partly that uh, because it, it it's just, it's a real, it can be a really um, life forming um, situation when, when you get together with, with a kid, with a teenager, with a teenager, you work it out. You strategize as a mom or a dad or an aunt or an uncle, grandparent, you know, someone who cares about a kid and you work it out together, you're there for them. And then they run it. They, they're the ones that run it. They go into wherever they're getting marginalized and they can come out of this situation feeling strong, having more friends and, and crucially just feeling much closer to the people that 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 care about them 
And that's what prompted it. I know that was a big answer, but it's your fault, Leo, because that was a really good question right out the gate. Oh, well, I'm, I'm here for the big answers and I'm, and I'm here for the, the, the big questions. And so the, the next question then, this leads me into how are we defining what bullying is? And I ask that because when I grew up, I don't remember ever hearing the word bullying. It, it was either you got beat up or you took an L or uh, they're picking on me. And so bullying to me is a, is a new phrase and not that it's new, but, but how are we defining bullying versus being picked on or somebody just saying something that hurt your feelings? Yeah, that's yeah. a great, that's a great. Yeah, um, Louise, you want to take that? A little bit. Yeah. And then I'd like to pass it over to you, Kim, for the deeper dive. Uh, so to begin with, just to backtrack for a second, Ron, how I came into this world and to working with Kim is that um, I worked in the sports world as a sports illustrated reporter and investigator for years and years. And I coached all five of my kids in various different sports, the chief one being soccer, but also my daughter did horseback riding, did ice skating and other stuff. And I, I, I kept on, I kept on seeing how coaches worked with kids and as a almost 30 year coach, how parents interacted with me, the coach, how they interacted with their kids after games and how kids themselves uh, dealt with each other in different high pressure situations. Because as you know, we all say sports is great for, uh, and, and teams are great for character building and, and resilience and uh, team cohesion and then socialization with that as a platform out in the world. But the fact is it's a high pressure situation. And rec leagues used to be where you could chill and you can't even do it there now because everybody's trying to get from there to the travel teams. So you have a, a pressure cooker situation for kids where winning is everything, where second place sucks, where it's professionalized youth rather than developmental, developmentally based youth. And I was at the Rudolf Steiner School in New York City and Kim came and gave a talk about boys and overwhelm and about teen development. And it was, for me, it was like, wow. I love what he's saying, and I don't just want to be one of those parents who enjoyed the lecture and read his book, Simplicity Parenting. I want to be one of those parents who meet this guy, meets this guy one-on-one -on -one and does something with him. And that's where we, we came up. I brought another friend of mine named Scott Lancaster, who worked for the NFL Youth Development and knew everything about training and about developing big youth programs nationally, like on a big level in soccer and football, big track record, him together with Kim and me. And we sat down in a beautiful place in Harlemville, New York, and talked and talked and talked and figured things out. And two years later, beyond winning, smart parenting in a toxic sports environment was our send off. It's a book that we created and a foundation that we created along with it, an organization called Whole Child Sports, which cares about the whole child, not the kid who can score, not the, not the kid who can dunk only, not the best kids on the team, but all the team as a whole, but also all of the child, their psychological development, their social development, their intellectual involvement, development, as well as their athleticism and training that in an appropriate staged way with four stages of play. So having done that, Kim and I focused in on one chapter. Uh, what was it, Kim, about entitlement monsters? 
you know, kids who wore their jerseys at school and were like the dude and the dudette and we're cool and you're not. And all the social ills that came out of uh, putting athletes on a pedestal in middle school and in high school, which we don't want to get deep into this. But, Ron, think about it. All these shootings have been going on. Most of those kids say at some point they just wanted it to stop the bullying. And a good portion of that building was coming from the popular kids who were athletes. So this is a societal problem that goes deep for years and years. But but Kim has a really nuanced understanding of definitionally, because he's been doing this for over 35 years, between bullying, mar- marginalization, all these different strata of this topic. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be quiet now and let him do what his what his expertise is. Yeah, Leo, it's a it's a it's a um, interesting thing to think about. Is that you know uh, the term bullying wasn't around? You know, it was maybe around, but it wasn't used all that much when we were all growing up. The way the way I tend to think about it is that is um, and in the in the book that Louise and I wrote, I kind of use the term interchangeably with um, the term hyper controlling behavior, and I know that's not. That's not as easy. It doesn't roll off the tongue so well, but it actually is what it is most of the time. When um, when uh, when someone is picking on someone else, it's usually because the perpetrator of the behavior is trying to control the situation, trying to control their lives, and they do that through controlling other kids. And the uh, and what we can get into later, maybe is uh, who are they attracted to? Which are the kinds of kids they try and control and why? And what can those kids do about it? But a really big part of it is understanding that um, that, that this is a, 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 a kid, n- not necessarily a bad kid, but this is, this is a teenager, a teenager who is trying to control and the reason I use that term more than just bullying is, is that that term leads to a question like, why? Why is he trying to control? Why are they trying to control? As opposed to bullying, which tends to lead to pathologizing and, and, and a label. I think that's a, a beautiful way to put it because, you know, a lot of research shows that when kids are asked, you know, why they bully, some of them will say they feel smarter, stronger, or better, uh, or they're being bullied at home, or, you know, they see other people doing it, or they're, they're, sometimes they bully because they're jealous of the other person, or it's, and sometimes it's like a defensive mechanism where it's one of the best ways to keep other people from bullying them. And so this idea of control makes sense because it's something that they would do because there's some other area of their life where they lack control. Um, and so if we're talking about controlling behavior, then how do we respond to that as parents, as a society, as a, or maybe the, the fir- maybe the first question is, is what's rooted in, why is this their response to feeling out of control? Right. Because not everybody bullies some people. Right. So why is this the response? Yeah. You know, one of the things kids try to control environments in different ways. Um, 
some will um, act out and others will fall back. Some kids get stubborn, get sullen, withdraw. Um, other kids um, will will move it on out there. They'll, they'll put it out. The And one of those ways of putting it out putting it out there is to is to is to bully to tease to pick on to um and another way is to form uh cliques or cliques um as well so you control you control friendships around you you control relationships around you other kids put it out there through really challenging behavior in classrooms you know and uh there there it's it's a good point leo because there are various ways this is done not all kids will will go down this this route but when they do go down this route they they sure need help and and the kids they pick on particularly need help to actually break this break the cycle um the because there's a cycle of of reactivity that sets up that has um the kids who are looking for social control they're going to look for the kids who are reactive because they're the easiest ones to trigger and they're the easiest ones to control because you're getting a reaction from them. And so a lot of the book uh, that Lewis and I uh, worked on were stories around how you can sit as a mom or a dad or an uncle, a grandparent, um, someone who cares for, 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 this, for this young person and how you can sit with them and 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 read and the the book is uh that Luis will tell us more about in a minute i hope is written with 10 with a, like a thing called a 10 story toolbox and in each one of those stories they're meant for stories you sit right on down and read with your teenager with your 11 12 year old your 16 year old and and the story is illustrative and each one of them has a kind of an arc i think it'd be fair to say Luis. it's a, an arc of empathizing um first of all you know like this is just one of the worst things that can happen to you um then what i did it's a it's voiced through an older kid looking back what i did that that really made it bad i just got it wrong i tried to stop this stuff but it just kept on going right so that there's that kind of message in most of the stories and then and then there's a pivot point where they get some advice from an older cousin, a mom, a dad, a grandpa, someone, a coach, someone, friend of the family, someone who who sort of figured this out a little bit, but will also just simply sit and listen to them and not judge them and not tell them to do stuff like just ignore it because they've tried that. And it makes them feel even more isolated to be told that sort of stuff. So we'll sit and listen to them. And then together, the pivot point comes where they figure out what it is they can do and then they run it and the 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 young person goes back into that environment uses these strategies and the strategies the story is illustrative but these stories are real they're not made up they're they're very real um and they use these strategies and they overcome it they break the cycle of reactivity and they feel good they get more friends and they get closer to the people who love them they get even closer to them and now the stories themselves uh, have 10 different themes. They're not all just about one theme because bullying, you know, uh, hyper-controlling behavior 
it's not all the same. You know, there are various stories that cover various ways of being marginalized. And um, maybe, uh, um, Luis, you can say a bit more about that. Absolutely, Kim. So the, the way we structured the book itself was uh, part one is advice to parents, right? And it goes deep on, on Kim's uh, long-term experience with not just individual one-on-one -on -one work with kids and in counseling with parents and kids and, and parents alone, but also with, uh, with schools, uh, you know, going into schools and, and working on, on improving their, their whole social ambiance, right? So the chapter one, chapter, chapter one is what to do and what not to do. Chapter two goes into uh, rites of passage and belonging is a process, not a right. And then chapter three focuses on something really important. We call it uh, bullying without borders, uh, which is cyberbullying. Chapter four is I can help, I'm here for you. And that's basically, we're telling the, we're, we're helping the parents understand that it's on them to create a, a, a safe space where the kid can start figuring things out for themselves. And if it's not the parent, then again, like Kim said, it could be a coach, it could be a teacher, it could be a cousin, an aunt, some family member, or even just a friend. And in one story, we have a kid who kind of figures this out just by watching another kid who isn't being bullied, but who has similar things going on that that that, that kid has. And he just wonders, why is she able to handle these three dudes and I can't? And that that by 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 figuring that out the kid gets out of that situation. So that's part one. And it's, and it's juicy and we can dive deeper into that, especially maybe Kim can uh, later in the hour. But part two is a 10 story toolbox. And as to Kim's comment, there really is a variety of types. And the bullying that we think of all the time, uh, Leo, like the you know, pushing up against the wall, the being beat up, like you were talking about how we called it, you know, the taking the L, right? That physical stuff, it appears in some uh, form in several stories, but there's only really one story that is about, um, you know, about physical bullying. And it's, it's the one um, we call Stop Pushing Me Around. It's Michael's story. But before that, we have the new kid, and obviously, whenever you're a new kid in a social situation, your your potential target, depending on how you integrate or don't, how you present yourself as somebody reactive and as an easy, you know, easy victim or not. And then we have, uh, but what if it's true, which is Daniel's story. And then we have how I got my confidence back about a girl who figured out, you know, who she was and how she'd been being pulled apart by other people in a clique she wanted to be a part of. And then one of the one of my favorites personally is a new group, a new me. And that's Joey's story. Joey's an accomplished athlete on a very good team in middle school. And because it's such a good team, he is not one of the best performers. But there are two kids who are just rough on him and pick on him particularly. And the only way that he and his, his dad, and it's mostly his dad and also a little bit of help from the coach, figure out how to improve his world is by taking him right out of that context and putting him in a different one. And so his dad sets something up with somebody in a different town when his dad is moved for work for a summer. 
and Joey learns that the 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 physical attributes and the and the knowledge that he has can be really useful somewhere else, which wouldn't be a, applied or of any interest on the basketball team. And he gets he gains uh, massive amounts of confidence and a good core group of friends. So when he goes back to school, he's almost like dad. I don't even think I want to play basketball because I like my friends and we do theater and it's so cool. And I know they're in a different town, but we still text each other. But his dad kind of counsels, hey, just try it out. The new him on the basketball team doesn't really care so much about what the kids are saying about him. The other kids who are not the bullies notice this. They feel safer approaching him. He gets integrated into the team and the whole social atmosphere of the team improves. And that's the key. With one smile, they say you can change a lot of people's days. Well, with one, one kid working to empower himself, an entire team can change. I love that. And it, it's so powerful. You're right, because a lot of kids, unfortunately, don't find their circle of confidence or competence early on. And so they do become reactive. And, and that's what I love about the first part of your book. I mean, very early on, I mean, you get immediately into it about talking about the, you know, the difference between an emotionally resilient response versus a trauma based response. With the first part of your book being focused on advice to parents, can you give us examples of first what parents shouldn't say or do? Because, uh, yeah, I have a lot of parents who listen in and, and they probably have great intentions in how they're responding to their kid being bullied or their kid's emotional distress. Um, but it may be ineffective. What are, what are parents saying and doing that, um, could, you know, cause a kid to maybe not even want to open up in the future or, or do more harm? Yeah. The, the, one of the things that, um, we do as parents and it's just, you know, completely understandable, you know, I got, uh, you know, I'm a parent and, um, is our first reaction is to protect our kids. And that is just only right and understandable. But if we stay there, if we stay in that place, um, it's usually because we don't have any tools, you know, if we've got tools to lift us out of that, out of that, we've got to protect our kids. Okay. But then the next question is how, and that's what we try to answer is how do we protect our kids? Because in answer to that question, Leo, some of the, some of the things that, that are not, not as effective um, uh, are, are things, uh, are things like over-normalizing, just saying, Hey, come on, this is just a, this is just a part of life, you know, just, just toughen up. Um, and we can kind of normalize it. Now, our son or daughter, a child is looking at us thinking, this is a part of life. I, I don't know. I do, really, and that could be a devastating message to a kid who's being who, who's being dehumanized and just pulled apart, or not even out and out bullying, but is just being marginalized and just can't find their way into friendship. And friendship is their world, right? When you're a kid, we all remember that. So saying, so normalizing it sends a bit of a hard message to, to, to kids. That's so the first thing is to be careful not to normalize it on one hand. And on the other is to not overreact, right? Is to not freak out, not um, not start banging on the desk of the principal, not ringing the other parents, not 
um, I was with a group of kids in North Carolina a, a ways back, and I said to the to the girls, our eighth graders, and we were just having lunch, and uh, we were training. In the schools I work with, we have we have a, a real emphasis on student social citizenship in the school. So these eighth graders were training to go out in the playground and be active, proactive, teach kids how to play in a healthy way. Um, uh, and be with the kids who are marginalized and bring them bring them in. It wasn't just an occasional visit. This was a everyday um, uh, uh, citizenship, a student social action committee. Anyway, I said to the girls, "Hey, girls, do you do you tell your mums?" And they said, "Oh my God, no!" And I said, "I said why not?" And they said, "Like you tell your mother, and then your mother rings the other mother and they start screaming and shouting and then in the parking lot they start hugging they said oh my god it's so embarrassing and <laughs> they, they were very they were they were very uh, eloquent about it i said to the boys hey boys do you tell your dads and the boys you know they're eighth graders rather go oh, no, no. and the one boy said oh, i i i told my dad and my mom and all the other kids turn and said Dude, you told your mom and your dad, and he said, "Yeah," and and they and I said, "Well, what did they say?" And he said, "Well, they just listened to me," and and the girls went, "You are so lucky." They just listened, and he said, "Yeah, yeah." They just kind of listened, and then they said to me that I was kind of brave because I was like going through a lot. And it made me want to be able to tell them other stuff. So I did. And I told them about it. And then they worked out with me what I could do. And then, and it was especially around, around not giving these kids oxygen to their fire. I still remember he said that, Leah, giving them, oh, that was a great term, giving the, the, the kids who are bullying oxygen. And then I kind of went into school and I, and I, and I did it and, you know, like right away, I just made other friends and, and within a couple of weeks, the whole thing was just over. And and the class went really quiet as this kid was talking about this. And they said, well, that's what we're going to do for these little kids that we're helping, right? Now, this, this boy who was talking like this wasn't one of the class leaders. He was a smaller kid, just a quieter kid. But in that moment, he became one of the class leaders. They they turned to him over and over again throughout that week that we were working together. They turned to him. And so his social intelligence that he had gained through the working out of a problem, which was like in third and fourth grade, all these years kind of went underground a little bit and then came up in eighth grade to establishing him as one of the the, the go-to kids in his class. And it was a beautiful situation, you know, but as so as parents, you see what his parents did? They didn't overreact. They didn't underreact. They gave him space. And, um, and that was one of the crucial things. There's one or two other things, but I just wanted to, you know, set a baseline there, really. And the the other thing that I've noticed um, that is is crucial, and Luis and I wrote a, one of the stories about this called It's Life That's Bullying Me, is that a lot of kids are leading, you know, uh, supersized lives where it's just too much, too soon, too sexy, too young, and they're feeling kind of overwhelmed and their nervous systems are activated 
and, and the outcome of all this is that they're reactive and reactive kids are the ones that get picked on. So one of the best things we can do when we're trying to help a, a child who's feeling marginalized is slow things up, dial things back, get in closer. You know, Leo, I have a, I still have a, you know, a family counseling practice. And if my phone rings and someone wants to talk to me about their child being picked on, yeah, we'll talk about strategies. We'll get there. We'll get into that. But the baseline is establishing a base camp for kids so that they don't feel so overwhelmed. They've just got a little more space in their lives that we we go cycling with them on the weekends. We play board games with them in the evenings. We just sit around. We have we try if you know get family meal times back back in in order. We just move in closer to our kids. We place we shoot some hoops out in the driveway. We whatever we do in whatever they like to do. If our child's being pushed to the fringe then we've got to actually, I believe, one of the first things we've got to do is establish a secure family base camp that they can launch out into the rough and tumble of their daily lives, knowing they're somewhere as secure as we can possibly make it for them to return to. Kim, we don't have time for all that. We got to get into Harvard. We ain't got time for for family (laughs) meals and 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 talking and and holding hands and shooting hoops we got we got uh piano lessons we got uh spanish to take we got mandarin we got to learn fencing we got (laughs) ivy league to think about here ken what are you talking about family time and slowing things down well you know (laughs) you know it's it's true it's true right it's 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 like parenting has become like a a contact sport (laughs) It's become like an arms race, right? But but the reality, the actual reality of it is that if your child is feeling secure and they've got a secure family base camp, then the frontal lobes of their brain, the, the thinking, the empathy part, the, the ability to learn and be successful at school, that part of the brain starts myelinating and flourishing. Highly stressed kids are underachieving kids and and they on one hand and on the other highly stressed kids are the kids that get picked on or we're back to the hyper controlling or if if they've got ballet on monday soccer on tuesday music lessons on wednesday and i don't know psychotherapy on friday to cope with it all what you know what then then you've got a child who is not actually laying down the pathways in their brain that they are going to need to be successful what they're doing is laying down pathways to the amygdala to the fight flight freeze or flock brain and that is not the learning brain and it's not the socially emotionally successful brain but it's not the academically successful brain you know uh leo everything that kim says now you understand why i stood up and listened in that lecture at the rudolf steiner school on a you know on a Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. And with my knowledge of, of professional sports and the pressure there and youth sports, I was like, this stuff needs to be applied across the board. So fast forward to us writing this book, and we have a chapter called The Power of Play. And Kim and I and Scott can talk to you for a whole nother podcast about specifics there. But the bottom line is that 
if your kid is slammed into ballet at three or hockey at four and a half tops or, or pop Warner at five and progresses on that in that one track, or maybe you think you're about about non-specialization. So you have them on two tracks because you want them to get into Harvard and you think your only way is for him to get there on the soccer team or the football team or her to get into Stanford is through the, the rowing or, or the swim team. You're doing them a massive disservice because all of the stuff that Kim just talked about, the resilience, the executive function one develops, uh, you know, all happens on that playground where no no parents are usually around. In other words, unsupervised, unstructured, free play. I'm not even talking about pickup of a specific sport, but earlier days when you're doing flashlight tag. Kim wrote a, a great book, uh, not one of the ones we just mentioned, on different ways that you can play games, different games to play that develop a kid's understanding of social interaction and make them better executives later. So we're kind of getting going in the back door here, but we're explaining to parents who want to, you know, weaponize their kids' development so that they can be those cutting-edge Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, MIT titans. Uh, we're we're telling them. You do that and you risk what your kid burning out and quitting sports as three out of four kids do by the age of 13, 14 or 15. Or maybe your kid becoming one of the best soccer goalies in the world and then killing herself because she can't stand the pressure of everything. You know, I mean, Leo, this is this is your bailiwick. This is your world. This is what you've studied. Why people get to that point where they jump off that cliff metaphorically or that bridge physically. And we're pushing kids in the wrong direction. Ironically, we think that they're developing character, strength, toughness, mental toughness, resilience. They're doing the opposite too soon into a sport that is adult version, not kid version. There've been some developments and improvements, but the way kids figure out and problem solve is on that playground when they're going to go play basketball and the kid with the ball is the smaller kid and the dweeby kid who never gets picked and nobody's passing to him. And he says, all right, guys, I'm out of here. I'm taking my ball with me. No, 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 stay. You can be on, on my team. And then suddenly he's getting passes, even though he's messing up a bit and he's starting to get better because he's getting more time on the ball. There's a world of incredible stuff that happens to a kid when they get a chance. And when, if they're not proficient at something, you give them a little attention and, and help. And that's where coaching comes in. So the kinds of kid that Kim was describing, there's a type of kid that when we, when we, when, cause Kim also has been a, a coach for many years of specific sports and myself and Scott, when we get a kid who's hyper aggressive, maybe the best defender on the team tackles, everybody does a great job is always on, but is also mean because dude, man, I could have got that ball. I pass it to you and you messed it up. I'm just not going to pass to you anymore. Kids can be super bullies, especially when they're really good. They're the best player, the second best player. What we do with a kid like that is in a worst case scenario where they're being brutal, you sometimes counsel them off the team. You might be canceling the parent off, to be honest, because a parent may be incredibly difficult. And that's a real shame. But you can pull that situation back by making that same kid who shows all this 
dynamism and strength and aggression, convert them into somebody who's assertive rather than aggressive. And you do that by teaching them to teach others. So instead of being the jerk kid who scores all the goals and lords it over everybody and gets angry when anybody messes up because I'm so good and shouldn't, why can't you do that the way I do it? You put them in a situation where they're teaching their assistant coach or you have them work with your, your younger team. And an interesting thing happens. It's actually quite magical. And all three of us, this has happened to us myriad times. You take that kid and you put him in, in charge of kids two years younger and he starts showing the kid what to do and the kids mess up. And he's like, dude, it's this simple, man. You're such a loser. I just passed you and you just open your body up more and you kick it like that. And the kids are like, you're mean. I don't want to, you're, you're not my coach. I want my, I want a new coach. And suddenly you come over and say, How, what's going on here? And, and instead of yelling at, the, at, at your kid and saying, you got to be nicer. You got to be, you take him aside and say, Hey, you know, uh, Joey, why don't you just show them? Because, you know, you're really great at this. That's why I chose you to be a, 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 an assistant coach. Uh, and, and to teach them, you got to show them little by little because you're next level. You learn this real quick. But a lot of kids, they just need to be brought alone. So why don't you just show them how to do the hammer pass with their left and just work on that with them. And slowly the kid begins to regulate their emotionality, their hyper-controlling behavior. They're basically been bullying everybody with their talent. And now they're teaching everybody about their skill. So what happens? The younger kids learn how to get better in a, in a quiet and intelligent way. And the, the really sort of hyper-aggressive kid becomes assertive, but not nasty, and learns how to be a leader, a true leader. Not the leader who lords it over people and hazes people which is what we have all across America, but the leader who inspires others and teaches them and models good behavior for them. One of the things just to build on that, Luis, you know, I was, um, I was uh, driving in a car a couple of years ago, long journey out West and I was going to a place where I was going to do a talk or whatever. And I heard, and I pulled the car over because I heard this report that said, um, by 2025, over 50% of all millennial employment will be part-time, project-based, not benefited, um, and uh, be be like part of the gig economy, right? And and it, there's fewer and fewer and fewer of these of these very structured jobs, and it really struck me. So, uh, and I was thinking, wow, that's the world my kids are going into. They're going into a world that where they're going to be they're going to be self-employed you know because i did the math by the way i got when i got home i i went onto the the website and did the math and it's that's the world our kids are going into is the self-employment world the project-based world and you know i i don't know if you've you've been self-employed leo louise i know you and i have and it's like the skills that you need to be self-employed or or part-time or whatever it is in that anything but that job for life that one job it's got to do with grit right it's got to do with grit it's got to do with problem solving it's got to do with being innovative adaptable it's it's got to do it's got to do with self-motivation 
Now, a lot of our kids are growing up in a world where too much is done for them. So that grit, that determination, and too much is outwardly structured. Like you were mentioning before, Leo, they've got all these classes and all this stuff that's all structured for them. And, you know, people say to me sometimes, you know, Kim, the, all this thing about giving children a childhood and backing off and giving them space, like you were saying, Luis, to play, uh, to be out there in the in the park or in the yard, you know, playing and so on. Yeah, that's really nice. You know, all this stuff. That's really nice, but that's not the world that exists. And, and my point is actually, is on the contrary, that is the world they're going into where they'll need to work stuff out. They'll need to motivate. It's not that they're going to go along and be dragged along to some piano lesson. Then there's nothing wrong with that up to a point, of course, of course. But when there's so much that's done for them, it's actually that's the world that's disappearing. The world that is coming for most of our kids is that where they're going to have to be creative, innovative, adaptable, and kids learn that through play, but they also learn that, and this comes full circle back to resiliency, the emotionally res resilient tween and teen, they do it through problem solving. When things are rough and we can help them get through times that are rough, then they're going to, that is a life skill that they're going to use over and over because anyone who's self-employed knows that, you know, you think of 10 ideas and one or two might work and, you know, one particularly and three or four a little bit, but the other six just don't work. And so you have to problem solve. And a, a part of the Emotionally Resilient Tween and Teen book, part of the sort of motivation, this is something you asked originally, Leo, is what was the motivation for writing this, is to help kids be able to um, uh, socially and emotionally problem solve, to be able to find their way through to success, to standing within their own power, because that is the world that they're, that's the world they're going into. Very powerful statements made by both of you. And, and I think that what really connects them is this idea of creativity, innovation, adaptability, and how that is linked to play. And I think that a lot of parents are putting their kids into all these different programs, uh, not recognizing the power of play. You know, I grew up, you know, up in 19, I was born in 1976. And a lot of those movies I remember the parents, if they wanted to connect with their child, they took the father took the son out in the backyard and they either uh, played catch or they shot hoops. And that was really the time where whatever needed to be said was said. That's when the kids felt safe enough to share. And that's mm. when the parents were also open enough to receive and listen. And we're losing so many of those opportunities now for efficiency, right? Um, for women, traditionally, it, that was time in the kitchen. You know, you're helping mom bake or cook. And then all of a sudden, you start opening up about what's really going on at school or what your thoughts or feelings really are about the move or whatever the situation is. And even, you know, I look at the relationship between me and my girlfriend, been together for three years. We're on different meal plans. We eat at different times. 
We have different schedules. Like, it, it, we're so far removed from the days of, you know, breakfast together or just dinner together. The whole family sits down. And, and, and yes, there are a lot of cultures out there that uh, still practice that, and, and I'm jealous. But here in America, we, we have um, we, we sacrificed connection for, um, you know, just trying to get things done. And so now kids feel like they don't have anybody to talk to or anybody that they trust enough to, to share with. But I love what you shared there, Lewis, about, um, you know, take an aggressive kid and, and turn them into a teacher. Because, you know, my experience has been that kids who are aggressive, they really want to be seen, heard, and understood, right? They're, they're being hurt somewhere and nobody's hearing them. So that, that now their, their reactivity is, is bullying. And they often do become great leaders if we can channel that energy. So I, I love that in terms of how to take an aggressive kid and make them assertive and then also uh, a leader and, and teach them skills on how to properly interact with other people. Um, in terms of this, uh, you know, parents talking to their kids, because, you know, Kim, as you mentioned, it's about establishing that base camp. And a lot of times I find kids don't outwardly say I'm being bullied. A lot of times they'll say I hate school or they just stop going to school or they just kind of give the silent treatment and don't say anything at all. My question is this. How as a parent do you, one, get your kid to start talking who is not just readily sharing? And then, two, how do you keep them talking? Because if a kid says, I hate school, do you say, you know, I understand listening is important, but how does a parent respond in a way that lets the kid know that they can continue to, to talk and I'm here to just listen? Yeah, the, the the metaphor that that um that that sometimes comes to me is is comes from canoeing or kayaking is 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 when a when a kid is in choppy waters and they're canoeing and I watched this happen once I was taking a group of kids on their on, on a trip and uh, there was one kid who wasn't wasn't paying much attention to the instructions of the of the canoeing people I was as long as a chaperone and. Got it, and and he got himself into some really choppy waters, and the um, one of the instructors, just an expert expert paddler, moved out, came alongside him, and just slowly just talked him down, and just slowly just said to him, okay, do this, all right, now just yeah, I'm with you, I got you, and literally the canoes, or they were actually kayaks, were were right alongside each other, and this instructor expertly. Um, she just she just eased this this boy back into calmer waters and then put her paddle over onto his kayak and then he and she said hey put your paddle over here put it behind us so that so that it was almost like an outrigger and they were much more stable there were these two and she just talked to him a little bit and and I, I was watching this and I thought man that is such a metaphor for life you know when what she just did she was just a terrific instructor but what she just did 
plays out all the time when our kids are uh, struggling and they say something like, I hate school or I don't want to go. Or what you start to get is almost like their, their, their normal temperament, their normal character starts to become fevered. You know what? Like if, if they're normally a very uh, out there kid, extroverted, um, sunny, bright, that kind of child can start just burning it up and becoming just too much and start becoming um, just a whirlwind of activity. And, and they're just overdoing it all over the place. If you've got a child who's a little bit um, quieter, they'll pull back way, way, way deep into themselves. If, if a child is just a feisty kid and that's who they are and just what a great thing. They just like they were born rolling up their sleeves, you know, day one. Then when they're really struggling, when they're being picked on, um, they just, they get super feisty. They get, they get really combative and oppositional. So one something I get asked a lot from parents is how do you know it, and and that's one is it, one way to know is to look at your child and if their temperament their natural character is becoming red hot it's becoming really inflamed you kind of know something's going on but Leo to your other point you're actually the data would prove would prove you right most kids under report being left out being marginalized being bullied um, and so, and they'll try to obfuscate, they'll put the blame somewhere else. So right again, you know, your hunch is, is, is correct there. The, the, um, so what do you do is you bring your canoe right alongside them. They're in choppy waters, you know, they're in life's choppy waters. So you move your canoe in beside them and you just talk to them quietly Tell them, hey, we're heading over there. We're heading over to quiet waters. We're going to moor there. We're going to get things reorganized. And you just talk to them really quietly. You calm things down. And you listen to them like you were saying. You know, you listen to them. And, and you ask them, what is it? What, what's, been, what's, what's been happening? What's up? What's making it so difficult? You know, you might tell them a little bit of a story from your own biography. You know, you tell a kid a story from your own life, particularly when you were struggling and and they're looking right at you at that point you know that you get their attention when you tell them a little bit about your own story and you empathize with them not so much that it's you know you're going to depress them but just you say i'm with you i know this is this sometimes can be hard create a lot of space for them this is the hangout time that we were talking about before and just let things unroll over a number of weeks. My advice to be be careful about having one big knockdown drag out conversation that puts kids off. But just let them know that over the the coming weeks you'll check in with them, and you create space to check in with them and say, "Hey, how's it going now?" and and listen and and just be there and be beside them. And not in front of them, not, not getting out there and trying to problem solve for them, but not way behind them. Just be with them, listen to them, speak with them, share your own biography, calm, calm things uh, down, just that notch or two uh, as much as you can. And, and Leo, like you were saying before, we might say, how can we calm things down? We've got all these practices to go to. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. 
And you could continue to do that, but the situation has a high likelihood of escalating. It's it's probably going to be much more trouble um, than you ever want in your life. And it gets to such a point where you've got to stop because now you're going to have to change schools or you're going to have to get into therapy with your kids. And it's a big deal. This is all proactive. What we're talking about is much more proactive. It's it's moving in there. But when your child says, I don't want to do that, I don't want to go to school, I don't want to participate, well, okay, why not just say to, to them, let's figure out where, where you feel safe, where you feel secure, how you can feel secure. Because what they're saying, I don't want to go to school, that's their position. But their need, their need is different from their position. Their need is to feel secure and safe and feel seen. That's their need. So my advice to parents and guardians is to work with a child's need, not from the outwardly fixed statement. That's uh, so that's so important. And and Leo, just to build a bit on that, uh, specifically with our book with uh, emotionally uh, resilient tweens and, and teens, uh, we have a story in there that uh, is about a girl named destiny who's an introvert right so it's not that she's being bullied there's no point in the entire story from the beginning to the end where you as a reader would say this is a great story about bullying there's nothing physical there's nothing hyper emotional there's nothing like you know uh her being left out specifically by anybody there's a young woman uh who is such an introvert she's so deep in herself that she just doesn't connect with anybody. Now her mom is a good mom, a hardworking mom, a mom who understands all this, but also is really attuned and realizes that she's not the best person for this job. She's not, she's mom and, and they always have always had a great relationship. Now her daughter's acting a little strange to, to Kim's point about the, the becoming inflamed. The girl has now been left out all the time, but not in any vicious way. Just simply, she, the kids don't really talk to her because she never talks. So she's kind of weird. So why should we like invite her to a party? She'll probably just sit there and sulk and, and look at everybody. And it looks like she's watching us. I don't want that girl around me. So what do you have? You have a mom who understands that my kid isn't making enough friends. There's no friends coming over. There's nothing. She's just hanging out with me and my friend. So the, the mom and her, her friend are hanging out and the girl's always watching movies with them on a Friday night. She's not socializing. And, and mom knows this can't be the best thing because after you move on from the sphere of your parents, it's the social sphere of your peers. And she sees her daughter isn't connecting in any way with anybody out there. But also that because they're so tightly bound as a mother-daughter, it's the solution's not going to come from her. She understands this very intelligent mother. So she calls a friend. That friend happens to be, and this girl's not an athlete, by the way. The story does end up being about the athletic setting, but she is in no way an athlete. Her, the daughter, nor is the mother, but the mother's best friend from way back is a top level track coach who has a very good track team 
in high school and who was herself a top performer. She was also a woman, and I don't want to give the whole story away, but who, who was a top elite athletic performer in college. And what she does, she takes Destiny and says, hey, Destiny, why don't you come be our team manager? And Destiny becomes the manager of a team of adults. So not of adult young women. In other words, high schoolers in their 11th and 12th grade on this top track team. So now she's pulled out of the middle school where she doesn't talk to anybody and no one talks to her. And she's completely isolated. Again, not on purpose, not in a mean way, but just because of her personality and her inner fears. But, she, but as Kim will tell you, introverts often have a very strong interior self. They just don't have a way of expressing it outwardly. So they're not extroverts and they can't get out there, but they have a strong sense within them. And this coach understood this about destiny and helped her with certain techniques and ways that she coached the team. And she never told destiny, destiny, you need to try this, this, and this. She just put her in that situation, becoming the manager and destiny overheard the other girls talking to each other, overheard how the coach talked to them about developing their own focus and inner talk. And she opens up like a flower a power flower, not just a pretty flower. And she becomes who she is, which is a strong, purposeful young woman who can handle herself in any situation. And she's not an athlete and she's not a great, wonderful student. She's just becomes a person who is socially intelligent and goes on and does great stuff in her world because of this. Lewis, Kim, thank you too so much for sharing your insights and, and information. The book is called Emotionally Resilient Tweens and Teens, Empowering Your Kids to Navigate Bullying, Teasing, and Social Exclusion. My last question, I ask this of all my guests, is always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Kim? Yeah, um, I pause, Leo, because I've been in that position um, with kids who uh, I was a school counselor for many years, and I've had teenagers right there, right where you're, um, yeah. And part of what I say to them is you're safe here. It, it's It's actually almost not saying anything it's accompanying them saying i'm with you i've got you there's 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 one person and there's i don't know there might be others but in me there's one person and i'm with you it's a little bit like um it's like it, it's uh, um i was i was working in the um in southern africa during the worst of the aids epidemic and i i, I would hear people um there often greet each other with this powerful zulu greeting they would they would greet each other and they would they would say they they would say subanu 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 brother subanu which meant i see you you know i i i see you and you'd hear it all the time beautiful i see you but then the refrain what the person who was being greeted would say back was they would say ngahona and ngahona means so now i am here 
So someone in that position needs to be seen so they can be here. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, calling the new 988 Suicide Prevention Hotline number or any of the other international phone numbers. If you're in Africa, if you're in Budapest, if you're in Canada or Switzerland or Germany, no matter what part of the world you are, there are international phone numbers where you can talk, chat, text. You can go to betterhelp.com. They have therapists from around the world that are ready, that they, they can link you up in the next 48 hours with a therapist. Um, and then you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you so much, Lewis. Very welcome, Leo. Thanks for doing what you do. What a pleasure, uh, Leo. We need more people like you shining some light on the tough stuff. And also with that, uh, a, uh, a pathway forward and out of the darkness. <laughs>